Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's story is called The Pot of Caviar. A short story written by Arthur Conan Doyle and first published in the Strand Magazine in March of 1908. Doyle enjoyed writing the story and wanted to turn it into a play, which he did. He wrote a one-act play with nearly the same name, this name being A Pot of Caviar, rather than The Pot of Caviar, which was the short story name. It was first performed on the 13th of November, 1908, at Jersey Opera House, dramatized by Mrs. Arthur Mortimer. It was also performed from the 19th of April to the 9th of May, 1910, at Adelphi Theatre and in provincial theatres by the Arthur Hardy Company, later in 1910. In May 1925, the play was adapted by J.C. Ledward. We hope you enjoy the short story, The Pot of Caviar, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It was the fourth day of the siege. Ammunition and provisions were both nearing an end, when the Boxer insurrection had suddenly flamed up and roared like a fire in dry grass across northern China. The few scattered Europeans in the outlying provinces had huddled together at the nearest defensible post and had held on for dear life until rescue came, or until it did not. In the latter case, the less said about their fate, the better. In the former, they came back into the world of men with that upon their faces which told that they had looked very closely upon such end as would ever haunt their dreams. Each owl was only fifty miles from the coast, and there was a European squadron in the Gulf of Liantong. Therefore the absurd little garrison, consisting of native Christians and railway men, with a German officer to command them, and five civilian Europeans to support them, held on bravely with the conviction that help must soon come sweeping down to them from the low hills to eastward. The sea was visible from those hills, and on the sea were their armed countrymen. Surely, then, they could not feel deserted. With brave hearts they manned the loopholes in the crumbling brick walls outlining the tiny European quarter, and they fired away briskly, if ineffectively, at the rapidly advancing sangers of the boxers. It was certain that in another day or so they would be at the end of their resources, but then it was equally certain that in another day or so they must be relieved. It might be a little sooner, or it might be a little later, but there was no one who ever ventured to hint that the relief would not arrive in time to pluck them out of the fire. Up to Tuesday night, there was no word of discouragement. It was true that on the Wednesday their robust faith in what was going forward behind those eastern hills had weakened a little. The gray slopes lay bare and unresponsive, while the deadly sangers pushed ever nearer so near that the dreadful faces which shrieked imprecations at them from time to time over the top could be seen in every hideous feature. There was not so much of that now since young Ainsley, of the diplomatic service, with his neat little three o three sporting rifle, had settled down in the squat church tower, and had devoted his days to abating the nuisance. But a silent sanger is an even more impressive thing than a clamorous one, and steadily, irresistibly, inevitably, the lines of brick and rubble drew closer. Soon they would be so near that one rush would assuredly carry the frantic swordsman over the frail entrenchment. It all seemed very black upon the Wednesday evening. Colonel Dresler, the German ex-infantry soldier, went about with an imperturbable face, 
but a heart of lead. Ralston, of the railway, was up half the night writing farewell letters. Professor Mercer, the old entomologist, was even more silent and grimly thoughtful than ever. Ainsley had lost some of his flippancy. On the whole, the ladies, Miss Sinclair, the nurse of the Scotch mission, Mrs. Patterson, and her pretty daughter Jessie, were the most composed of the party. Father Pierre of the French mission was also unaffected, as was natural to one who regarded martyrdom as a glorious crown. The boxers yelling for his blood beyond the walls disturbed him less than his forced association with the sturdy Scotch Presbyterian presence of Mr. Patterson, with whom for ten years he had wrangled over the souls of the natives. They passed each other now in the corridors as dog passes cat, and each kept a watchful eye upon the other, lest even in the trenches he might filch some sheep from the rival fold, whispering heresy in his ear. But the Wednesday night passed without a crisis, and on the Thursday all was bright once more. It was Ainsley up in the clock tower who had first heard the distant thud of a gun. Then Dressler heard it, and within half an hour it was audible to all, that strong iron voice, calling to them from afar and bidding them to be of good cheer, since help was coming. It was clear that the landing party from the squadron was well on its way. It would not arrive an hour too soon. The cartridges were nearly finished. Their half-rations of food would soon dwindle to an even more pitiful supply. But what need to worry about that now that relief was assured? There would be no attack that day, as most of the boxers could be seen streaming off in the direction of the distant firing, and the long lines of Sangers were silent and deserted. They were all able, therefore, to assemble at the lunch-table, a merry, talkative party, full of that joy of living which sparkles most brightly under the imminent shadow of death. "'The pot of caviar!' cried Ainsley. "'Come, Professor, out with that pot of caviar!' "'Pots tousand, yes!' grunted old Dresler. "'It is certainly time that we had that famous pot!' The ladies joined in, and from all parts of the long, ill-furnished table there came the demand for caviar. It was a strange time to ask for such a delicacy, but the reason is soon told. Professor Mercer, the old Californian entomologist, had received a jar of caviar in a hamper of goods from San Francisco, arriving a day or two before the outbreak. In the general pooling and distribution of provisions, this one dainty and three bottles of Lacrima Christi from the same hamper had been accepted and set aside. By common consent, they were to be reserved for the final joyous meal when the end of their peril should be in sight. Even as they sat, the thud-thud of the relieving guns came to their ears, more luxurious music to their lunch than the most symboretic restaurant of London could have supplied. Before evening the relief would certainly be there. Why, then, should their stale bread not be glorified by the treasured caviar? But the professor shook his gnarled old head and smiled his inscrutable smile. "'Better wait,' said he. "'Wait! Why wait?' cried the company. "'They have still far to come,' he answered. "'They will be here for supper at the latest,' said Ralston of the railway, a keen, bird-like man with bright eyes and long, projecting nose." "'They cannot be more than ten miles from us now. "'If they only did two miles an hour, "'it would make them due at seven. "'There is a battle on the way,' remarked the colonel. "'You will grant two hours or three hours for the battle.' "'Not half an hour,' cried Ainsley. "'They will walk through them as if they were not there. 
"'What can these rascals with their matchlocks and swords "'do against modern weapons?' "'That depends on who leads the column of relief,' said Dressler, "'if they are fortunate enough to have a German officer.' "'An Englishman for my money!' cried Ralston. "'The French Commodore is said to be an excellent strategist,' remarked Father Pierre. "'I don't see that it matters a toss,' cried the exuberant Ainsley. "'Mr. Mauser and Mr. Maxim are the two men who will see us through, "'and with them on our side, no leader can go wrong. "'I tell you they would just brush them aside and walk through them. "'So now, Professor, come on with that pot of caviar.' "'But the old scientist was unconvinced.' "'We shall reserve it for supper,' said he. "'We'll return with our story, The Pot of Caviar, "'right after these sponsor messages.' "'And now back to our story.' "'After all,' said Mr. Patterson, "'in his slow, precise, Scottish intonation, "'it will be a courtesy to our guests, "'the officers of the relief, "'if we have some palatable food to lay before them. "'I'm in agreement with the professor.' "'that we reserved the caviar for supper.' "'That argument appealed to their sense of hospitality. "'There was something pleasantly chivalrous, too, "'in the idea of keeping their one little delicacy "'to give a savor to the meal of their preservers. "'There was no more talk of the caviar. "'By the way, Professor,' said Mr. Patterson, "'I've only heard today that this is the second time "'that you have been besieged in this way. "'I'm sure we should all be very interested "'to hear some details of your previous experience.' "'The old man's face set very grimly. "'I was in Sung Tong in South China in 89,' said he. "'It's a very extraordinary coincidence "'that you should twice have been in such a perilous situation,' "'said the missionary. "'Tell us how you were relieved at Sung Tong.' "'The shadow deepened upon the weary face. "'We were not relieved,' said he. "'What? The place fell?' "'Yes, it fell.' "'And you came through alive. "'I am a doctor as well as an entomologist. "'They had many wounded, so they spared me. "'And the rest?' "'Assi, assi,' cried the little French priest, "'raising his hand in protest. "'He had been twenty years in China. "'The professor had said nothing, but there was something, "'some lurking horror in his dull gray eyes "'which had turned the ladies pale. "'I am sorry,' said the missionary. "'I could see that it is a painful subject. "'I should not have asked.' "'No,' the professor answered slowly. "'It is wiser not to ask. "'It is better not to speak about such things at all. "'But surely those guns are very much nearer.' "'There could be no doubt of it. "'After a silence, the thud, thud, "'had recommenced with a lively ripple of rifle fire "'playing all round that deep bass master note. "'It must be just at the farther side of the nearest hill. "'They pushed back their chairs and ran out to the ramparts.' "'the silent-footed native servants came in "'and cleared the scanty remains from the table. "'But after they had left, "'the old professor sat on there, "'his massive, grey-crowned head leaning upon his hands, "'and the same pensive look of horror in his eyes. "'Some ghosts may be laid for years, "'but when they do rise, "'it is not so easy to drive them back to their slumbers. "'The guns had ceased outside, "'but he had not observed it, "'lost as he was in the one supreme "'and terrible memory of his life.' His thoughts were interrupted at last by the entrance of the commandant. There was a complacent smile upon his broad German face. "'The Kaiser will be pleased,' said he, rubbing his hands. "'Yes, certainly it should mean a decoration. Defense of Ichau against the boxers by Colonel Dresler, 
late major of the 114th Hanoverian Infantry. Splendid resistance of small garrison against overwhelming odds. It will certainly appear in the Berlin papers. Then you think we are saved, said the old man, with neither emotion nor exultation in his voice. The colonel smiled. Why, Professor, said he, I've seen you more excited on the morning when you brought back Lepidus Mercensis in your collecting box. The fly was safe in my collecting box first, the entomologist answered. I've seen so many strange turns of fate in my long life that I do not grieve, nor do I rejoice until I know that I have cause. But tell me the news. Well, said the colonel, lighting his long pipe and stretching his gaitered legs in the bamboo chair. I'll stake my military reputation that all is well. They are advancing swiftly. The firing has died down to show that resistance is at an end, and within an hour we'll see them over the brow. Ainsley is to fire his gun three times from the church tower as a signal, and then we shall make a little sally on our own account. And you are waiting for the signal? Yes, we are waiting for Ainsley's shots. I thought I would spend some time with you, for I had something to ask you. "'Well, what was it?' "'Well, you remember your talk about the other siege, "'the siege of Sung Tong. "'It interests me very much from a professional point of view. "'Now that the ladies and civilians are gone, "'you'll have no objection to discussing it?' "'It is not a pleasant subject.' "'No, I dare say not. "'Mein Gott, it was indeed a tragedy. "'But you have seen how I have conducted the defense here. "'Was it wise? Was it good?' "'Was it worthy of the traditions of the German army?' "'I think you could have done no more.' "'Thank you. "'But this other place, was it as ably defended? "'To me a comparison of this sort is very interesting. "'Could it have been saved?' "'No. "'Everything possible was done, save only one thing.' "'Ah, there was one omission. "'What was it?' "'No one, above all, no woman, "'should have been allowed to fall alive into the hands of the Chinese.' The colonel held out his broad bread hand and enfolded the long, white, nervous fingers of the professor. "'You are right, a thousand times right, but do not think that this has escaped my thoughts. For myself I would die fighting, so would Ralston, so would Angeli. I have talked to them, and it is settled. But the others, I have spoken with them. But what are you to do? There are the priest, and the missionary, and the women.' "'Would they wish to be taken alive?' They would not promise to take steps to prevent it. They would not lay hands on their own lives. Their consciences would not permit it. Of course, it is all over now, and we need not speak of such dreadful things. But what would you have done in my place? Kill them. Mine God! You would murder them? In mercy I would kill them. Man, I've been through it. I've seen the death of the hot eggs. I've seen the death of the boiling kettle. I have seen the women. My God, I wonder that I've ever slept sound again. His usually impassive face was working and quivering with the agony of the remembrance. I was strapped to a stake with thorns in my eyelids to keep them open, and my grief at their torture was a less thing than my self-reproach when I thought that I could with one tube of tasteless tablets have snatched them at the last instant from the hands of their tormentors. Murder! I'm ready to stand at the divine bar and answer for a thousand murders such as that. Sin! Why, it is such an act as might well cleanse the stain of real sin from the soul. But if, 
knowing what I do. I should have failed this second time to do it. Then by heaven, there is no hell deep enough or hot enough to receive my guilty craven spirit. The colonel rose, and again his hand clasped that of the professor. You speak sense, said he. You are a brave, strong man, who knows your own mind. Yes, by the Lord. You would have been my great help had things gone the other way. I've often thought and wondered in the dark, early hours of the morning, but I did not know how to do it. But we should have heard Ainsley's shots before now. I will go and see. Again the old scientist sat alone with his thoughts. Finally, as neither the guns of the relieving force nor yet the signal their approach sounded upon his ears, he rose, and was about to go himself upon the ramparts to make inquiry when the door flew open and Colonel Dresler staggered into the room. His face was of a ghastly yellow-white, and his chest heaved like that of a man exhausted with running. There was brandy on the side-table, and he gulped down a glassful. Then he dropped heavily into a chair. "'Well,' said the professor, coldly, "'they are not coming?' "'No, they cannot come.' There was silence for a minute or more, the two men staring blankly at each other. "'Do they all know?' "'No one knows but me.' "'How did you learn?' "'I was at the wall near the postern gate, "'the little wooden gate that opens on the rose garden. "'I saw something crawling among the bushes. "'There was a knocking at the door. "'I opened it. "'It was a Christian Tartar, "'badly cut about with swords. "'He had come from the battle. "'Commodore Wyndham, the Englishman, had sent him. "'The relieving force had been checked. "'They had shot away most of their ammunition. "'They had entrenched themselves "'and sent back to the ships for more.' Three days will have to pass before they can come. That was all. Mine gut! That was enough. The professor bent his shaggy gray brows. Where is the man? he asked. He's dead. He died of loss of blood. His body lies at the postern gate. And no one saw him? Not to speak to. Oh, they did see him then. Ainsley must have seen him from the church tower. He must know that I've had tidings. "'He will want to know what they are. "'If I tell him, they must all know. "'How long can we hold out?' "'An hour or two at the most. "'Is that absolutely certain? "'I pledge my credit as a soldier upon it. "'Then we must fall?' "'Yes, we must fall. "'There is no hope for us. "'None.' "'The door flew open and young Ainsley rushed in. Behind him crowded Ralston, Patterson, and a crowd of white men and of native Christians. "'You've had news, Colonel!' Professor Mercer pushed to the front. "'Colonel Dresler has just been telling me. It is all right. They have halted, but will be here in the early morning. There is no longer any danger.' A cheer broke from the group in the doorway. Everyone was laughing and shaking hands. "'But suppose they rush us before tomorrow morning?' "'cried Ralston in a petulant voice. "'What infernal fools these fellows are not to push on! "'Lazy devils! "'They should be court-martialed, every man of them!' "'It's all safe,' said Ainsley. "'These fellows have had a bad knock. "'We can see their wounded being carried by the hundred over the hill. "'They must have lost heavily. "'They won't attack before morning.' "'No, no,' said the colonel. "'It is certain that they won't attack before morning. "'Nonetheless,' "'Get back to your posts. "'We must give no point away.' "'He left the room with the rest, "'but as he did so he looked back, 
"'and his eyes for an instant met those of the old professor. "'I leave it in your hands,' was the message which he flashed. "'A stern, set smile was his answer. "'The afternoon wore away without the boxers making their last attack. "'To Colonel Dresser it was clear that the unwanted stillness "'meant only that they were reassembling their forces "'from their fight with the relief column "'and were gathering themselves for the inevitable and final rush.' To all the others it appeared that the siege was indeed over, and that the assailants had been crippled by the losses which they had already sustained. It was a joyous and noisy party, therefore, which met at the supper-table, when the three bottles of lacrima Christi were uncorked, and the famous pot of caviar was finally opened. It was a large jar, and though each had a tablespoon of the delicacy, it was by no means exhausted. Ralston, who was an epicure, had a double allowance— "'He pecked away at it like a hungry bird. "'Ainsley, too, had a second helping. "'The professor took a large spoonful himself, "'and Colonel Dresler, watching him narrowly, did the same. "'The ladies ate freely, save only pretty Miss Patterson, "'who disliked the salty, pungent taste. "'In spite of the hospitable entreaties of the professor, "'her portion lay hardly touched at the side of her plate. "'You don't like my little delicacy.' "'It is a disappointment to me when I had kept it for your pleasure,' said the old man. "'I beg that you will eat the caviar.' "'I've never tasted it before. No doubt I should like it in time.' "'Well, you must make a beginning. Why not start to educate your taste now? Do, please.' Pretty Jessie Patterson's bright face shone with her sunny, boyish smile. "'Why, how earnest you are!' she laughed. "'I had no idea you were so polite, Professor Mercer.' "'Even if I do not eat it, I am just as grateful.' "'You are foolish not to eat it,' said the professor, "'with such intensity that the smile died from her face "'and her eyes reflected the earnestness of his own. "'I tell you, it is foolish not to eat the caviar tonight.' "'But why? Why?' she asked. "'Because you have it on your plate. "'Because it is sinful to waste it.' "'There, there!' said stout Mrs. Patterson, "'leaning across. "'Don't trouble her any more. "'I can see that she does not like it. "'But it shall not be wasted.' "'She passed the blade of her knife under it "'and scraped it from Jessie's plate onto her own. "'Now it won't be wasted. "'Your mind will be at ease, Professor.' "'But it did not seem at ease. "'On the contrary, his face was agitated "'like that of a man who encounters "'an unexpected and formidable obstacle. "'He was lost in thought. "'The conversation buzzed cheerily. "'Everyone was full of his future plans. "'No, no, there's no holiday for me,' said Father Pierre. "'We priests don't get holidays. "'Now that the mission and school are formed, "'I am to leave it to Father Emil, "'and to push westwards to found another.' "'You are leaving?' said Mr. Patterson. "'You don't mean that you are going away from Ichau?' "'Father Pierre shook his venerable head in waggish reproof. "'You must not look so pleased, Mr. Patterson.' "'Well, well, our views are very different,' said the Presbyterian. "'But there is no personal feeling towards you, Father Pierre. "'At the same time, how any reasonable, educated man "'at this time of the world's history "'can teach these poor benighted heathen that—' "'A general buzz of remonstrance silenced the theology. "'What will you do yourself, Mr. Patterson?' asked someone. "'Well, I'll take three months in Edinburgh to attend the annual meeting.' "'You'll be glad to do some shopping in Prince's Street, I'm thinking. "'And you, Jesse, you'll see some folk your own age. "'Then we can come back in the fall when your nerves have had a rest.' 
"'Indeed, we shall all need it,' said Miss Sinclair, the mission nurse. "'You know, this long strain takes me in the strangest way. "'At the present moment I can hear such a buzzing in my ears.' "'Well, that's funny, for it's just the same with me,' cried Ainsley. "'An absurd up-and-down buzzing, as if a drunken bluebottle were trying experiments on his register. "'As you say, it must be due to nervous strain. "'For my part, I'm going back to Peking, and I hope I may get some promotion over this affair. "'I can get good polo here, and that's as fine a change of thought as I know. "'How about you, Ralston?' "'Oh, I don't know. I've hardly had time to think.' I want to have a real good, sunny, bright holiday and forget it all. It was funny to see all the letters in my room. It looked so black on Wednesday night that I'd settled up my affairs and written to all my friends. I don't quite know how they were to be delivered, but I trusted to luck. I think I will keep those papers as a souvenir. They will always remind me of how close a shave we've had. Yes, I would keep them, said Dressler. His voice was so deep and solemn that every eye was turned upon him. "'What is it, Colonel? You seem in the blues tonight.' It was Ainsley who spoke. "'No, no. I'm very contented.' "'Well, so you should be when you see success in sight. I am sure we are all indebted to you for your science and skill. I don't think we could have held the place without you. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to drink to the health of Colonel Dresler of the Imperial German Army. Er so lieben! Hock!' They all stood up, "'and raised their glasses to the soldier, with smiles and bows. "'His pale face flushed with professional pride. "'I have always kept my books with me. "'I have forgotten nothing,' said he. "'I do not think that more could be done. "'If things had gone wrong with us, and the place had fallen, "'you would, I am sure, have freed me from any blame or responsibility.' "'He looked wistfully round him. "'I'm voicing the sentiments of this company, Colonel Dressler.' "'said the Scotch minister, when I say, "'But, Lord save us! "'What's amiss with Mr. Ralston?' "'He had dropped his face upon his folded arms "'and was placidly sleeping. "'Don't mind him,' said the professor hurriedly. "'We're all on the stage of reaction now. "'I have no doubt that we're all liable to collapse. "'It is only tonight that we shall feel what we have gone through.' "'I'm sure I can fully sympathize with him,' said Mrs. Patterson. "'I don't know when I've been more sleepy. "'I can hardly hold my own head up.' "'She cuddled back in her chair and shut her eyes. "'Well, I've never known Mary to do that before,' "'cried her husband, laughing heartily. "'Gone to sleep over his supper. "'Whatever will she think when we tell her of it afterwards?' "'But this air does seem hot and heavy. "'I could certainly excuse anyone who falls asleep tonight. "'In fact, I think I'll just turn in early myself.' Ainsley was in a talkative, excited mood. He was on his feet once more with his glass in his hand. "'I think that we ought to have one drink altogether and then sing Old Lang Syne,' said he, smiling round at the company. "'For a week we've all pulled in the same boat, and we've got to know each other as people never do in the quiet days of peace. We've learned to appreciate each other, and we've learned to appreciate each other's nations. There's the Colonel here, stands for Germany, and Father Pierre is for France.' Then there's the professor, for America. Ralston and I are Britishers. Then there's the ladies, God bless them. They've been angels of mercy and compassion all through the siege. I think we should drink to the health of the ladies. Wonderful thing, the quiet courage, the patience, the, what shall I say, the fortitude, the, the by George, look at the colonel. 
"'He's gone to sleep, too. "'Most infernal sleepy weather.' "'His glass crashed down upon the table, "'and he sank back, mumbling and muttering, into his seat. "'Miss Sinclair, the pale mission nurse, had dropped off also. "'She lay like a broken lily across the arm of her chair. "'Mr. Patterson looked round him and sprang to his feet. "'He passed his hand over his flushed forehead. "'This isn't natural, Jesse,' he cried. "'Why are they all asleep?' "'There's Father Pierre. He's off, too. "'Jesse! Jesse! Your mother is cold. Is it sleep? Is it death? "'Open the windows. Help!' "'He staggered to his feet and rushed to the windows, "'but midway his head spun round, his knees sank under him, "'and he pitched forward upon his face. "'The young girl had also sprung to her feet. "'She looked round her with horror-stricken eyes at her prostrate father "'and the silent ring of figures.' "'Professor Mercer! What is it? What is it?' she cried. "'Oh, my God! They're dying! They're dead!' The old man had raised himself by a supreme effort of his will, though the darkness was already gathering thickly round him. "'My dear young lady,' he said, stuttering and stumbling over the words, "'we would have spared you this. It would have been painless to mind and body. It was cyanide. I had it in the caviar. But you would not have it. "'Great heaven!' "'She shrank away from him with dilated eyes. "'Oh, you monster! "'You monster! "'You've poisoned them!' "'No, no. "'I saved them. "'You don't know the Chinese. "'They are horrible. "'In another hour we should all have been in their hands. "'Take it now, child!' "'Even as he spoke, "'a burst of firing broke out "'under the very windows of the room. "'Hark! "'There they are!' "'Quick, dear, quick! You may cheat them yet!' But his words fell upon deaf ears, for the girl had sunk back senseless in her chair. The old man stood listening for an instant to the firing outside. "'But what was that? Merciful Father, what was that? Was he going mad? Was that the effect of the drug? Surely it was a European cheer! Yes, there were sharp orders in English!' There was the shouting of sailors. He could no longer doubt it. By some miracle the relief had come after all. He threw his long arms upwards in his despair. What have I done? Oh, good Lord, what have I done? He cried. It was Commodore Wyndham himself who was the first, after his desperate and successful night attack, to burst into that terrible supper room. Round the table sat the white and silent company. Only in the young girl who moaned and faintly stirred was any sign of life to be seen. And yet there was one in the circle who had the energy for the last supreme duty. The Commodore, standing stupefied at the door, saw a gray head slowly lifted from the table, and the tall form of the professor staggered for an instant to its feet. "'Take care of the caviar. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. For God's sakes. It's laced with cyanide.' Then he sank back once more, and the circle of death was complete. Thanks for joining us for this great short story from Arthur Conan Doyle. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment, please do send us a review for 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>